Hold on to your helmets, folks. F1 break check is back. Formula One returns to Sin City to blast down the Las Vegas Strip and meander around the sphere. This week's action had twists. It had turns. It had random Elvis impersonator sightings in the paddock and more than a few pit stops at the blackjack tables. We'll recap the history of F1 in Las Vegas. We'll have part two of our suspension discussion in our tech corner. And Corey and I will break down the weekend's action and maybe witness a pit crew dance off. Viva la F1 Break Check. Welcome. You are listening to F1 Break Check, the epic podcast for all things Formula One, where we discuss technology, history, news, and perspective with your hosts, Scott Vick and Corey Green. All right. So we're back with F1 Break Check. As with me, as always, is my intrepid co-host, Corey Broom. Corey, how are you doing this week, my friend? Awesome. This week is Thanksgiving. So, yep. well, you know, it's funny. Monday, I actually had to fly out to Phoenix for, get this, an hour meeting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, that's not a waste of time and resources. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I went out there, I had a quick meeting, came back. I love going out to Phoenix. Although, you know, again, I was out there for... A total of four hours, five hours, something like that. And, and mm-hmm. yesterday yeah. was basically a, a throwaway day. And then today, tomorrow, and Friday, we're celebrating Thanksgiving. So we're all off. Listening back to our previous podcast, going through predictions. Mm-hmm. Unless memory fails me, I don't think I made one prediction correct. <laughs> I think I got half of one prediction correct. And 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 I actually have it in the show notes to talk about our missed predictions. Okay. All right. So. We'll, we'll go we'll go into that next then. All right. Yeah. Cool. So we'll we'll talk about where we missed that on this one and we'll make our bold predictions for the next podcast nice. for the next nice. race. Yeah, yeah. So what about you? How, how's it going with you? It's been very quiet this week. Well, mostly quiet. Like you said, it's Thursday is Thanksgiving here in the United States, major holiday for all of us here in the U.S. So I took the whole week off. So it's just, I've been running around doing a lot of things that I had been neglecting over the past few weeks because of my, my real world job, if you will. So (laughs) getting all these other things done. So it's, you know, it's been probably just as hectic, but at the same time, not quite as chaotic. I guess I, I, I don't yeah. know quite how to, how to put it any better than that, other than just been running around, running a lot of errands and, and catching up on things that, you know, have been needing to be taken care of because there was no set schedule to it or anything or any kind of meetings or anything that I had to attend. It was a little more, you know, oh, okay, well, I got to get this done this week, but I'll take care of it this afternoon or something <laughs> like that. So that's that's been nice. Awesome. <laughs> let's talk about the history of F1 in the fact that we're not going to talk about the history of F1 because we talked about it last week during our preview for the Las Vegas Grand Prix. So if you want an in-depth history of the Las Vegas Grand Prix, such as it is, go back and listen to last week's podcast. Mostly I just wanted to touch base on the fact that we had talked last week about when the last Grand Prix had been back in the early 80s, but not having done the math in my own head, I didn't realize it, even myself that it had been 40 years since the last time F1 had been in Las Vegas. And back then it was a more or less a complete disaster. So there was not a whole lot change. of hope for. Yeah, exactly. There was not a whole lot of hope for this particular time around. I think we've got kind of a, a mixed bag on everything that we'll talk about here in just a little bit. F1 and, and Las Vegas signed a 10-year contract for this. So it's like we've got one year down, nine to go. You know, like most street circuits, generally, usually the first year, there's a lot of teething problems. We saw the same thing happen first year that F1 was in Baku. 
Um, we saw it the first year at Jeddah. There was definitely some teething problems that we'll talk about later on in the podcast and everything that I'm hoping that they learn their lessons this time around and that they will make sure that the improvements are made such that we won't see a repeat of the same incidents next time around. Exactly. All right. So this week in our tech corner, we're going to do our follow-up conversation um, around suspensions because the suspensions were kind of in the forefront again this week because although being a street circuit, Las Vegas is a generally flat racetrack without a lot of elevation changes like what we would see at the more what are referred to as natural road courses such as, you know, like Spa or Hungary or, you know, other places like that. It's more of a flat track. Martin Brundle put it best when he compared it that it is very much a Monza Silverstone type track with very little elevation changes, but the biggest difference being Whereas those are natural, quote unquote, natural road courses that are permanent facilities. This was basically Monza with walls everywhere. Street circuits, the suspensions play a much bigger part of the overall car balance as opposed to a traditional road course where it requires a lot more aero. When we talked about a couple of weeks ago during our previous podcast, when we talked about more about the evolution of the suspension, now we're going to take, and this week we're going to take, and we're going to talk about the actual current suspensions and how, how they work and how they differ from probably what most of us are used to on our own road cars. So the first thing I want to talk about is the caster. For those who don't know, the caster, and we talked about this, and again, a lot of these things we, we kind of touched upon during a previous podcast, but now we're going to go a little more in depth. So with the caster is the relationship of the dampers or shock absorbers, the relationship of the damper to the angle of the damper from the center line of the axle. So the, the more caster that you have in a suspension travel will be based upon the angle of the damper to the center line of the axle. One of the things that I had mentioned during the previous discussion about suspensions was, as I mentioned about being able to adjust the casters, which once upon a time was indeed the case, but I came to just recently learn that the current iteration, a lot of this goes back to because of the restrictions on testing and things like that. When the designers now, when they design and build a current year's car, they pretty much decide on a caster angle and that is pretty much where they stick to unless you know a team realizes that they got it completely wrong they generally will stick to the same caster for that entire car's lifespan so there's really not a lot of adjustment that's made to the caster and with the caster it does on a formula 1 car although it does play a crucial role in the entire rest of the suspension geometry is built will takes is in a large part dictated by the caster angle once the caster angle is decided upon and the rest of the geometry is configured based upon that caster angle it's not as much of a critical component as other things are in the week-to-week -week running of the car at the races. So that leads us into our next part of the suspension equation is the camber. So the camber is the 
relationship of the bottom of the tire and the top of the tire in the vertical space. So to have a what what is referred to as a negative camber means that the top of the tires are actually pointed more towards the inside of the car and the bottom of the tires are pointed more towards the outside of the car. And the opposite is a positive camber means that the top of the tires are pointed more away from the car and the bottom of the tires are pointed more towards the inside of the car. Now, the reason why camber is so important is as the car goes through a turn and the car has a tendency to load, meaning it has a tendency to roll or pitch away from the point of where the car is entering the corner. So if you're going left, gravity will naturally want to make the car roll to the right. And just the opposite is if you're turning to the right, the car naturally will want to roll to the left. Well, the more the car rolls, the more important it is to make sure that the contact patch of the tires, you keep as much of that contact patch with the ground as possible. So by having more of a negative camber, when you're rolling into the corner, it will cause the inside tire or the tire that's going into the corner first, as it rolls over, it takes and it allows for that to maintain more of a contact patch than when it's going in a straight line. With the camber, Pirelli has actually mandated that on the cars, because of the way that their tires are constructed and everything, there's actually a minimum and a maximum camber that the teams are allowed to configure for the cars. Because of the way that the steering and everything is set up on the cars, the tires in the front will generally have more camber than the tires in the rear. The tires in the rear, because they're the drive wheels and they're not actually turning, moving back and forth, it's not as critical for them to take and have as much camber because they have a tendency to be a little more quote unquote static. The rear tires being mostly static because they're not actually part of the turning equation. When rotating the car, it's more important for the front tires to be able to grab and have as much traction in order to keep the car in that rotation as it's going around the corner, whereas the drive wheels are more pushing the car that's why a lot of times you'll hear that people talk about the difference between like a front wheel drive car and a rear wheel drive car is because the front is so much more important for the traction. And on a front wheel drive car, it will actually, depending upon the way that you get onto the throttle and everything will cause more torque to be put into the wheels. And it generates what is referred to as torque steer, which is where the car actually wants to wants to rotate even more. And it generates much more oversteer than what is generally desired. Whereas the rear wheels are, are driving it, it will take and have a tendency to cause much more understeer. Now that we've talked about how the camber is set up, camber is, is one of those things, unlike the caster, which requires a complete reconfiguration of the whole suspension geometry Camber is relatively easy for the teams to change on the fly in the, the garage. Oftentimes, most road cars don't even have the ability to adjust their camber. Or if they do, generally, it will be done by a series of screws that are attached to the wheel hub. In order for a technician to be able to take and adjust the camber, they will take and move the screws based upon what the machine that they're using to measure the camber tells them to adjust it. Whereas with a modern Formula One car, they actually have shims built into the wheel hubs. Cars have these shims and the shims are built in literally millimeter increments. So they might have like one, two, three, five, 10 millimeter increments. 
and the teams can literally a mechanic all he has to do is once the wheel is taken off all he has to do is go into the wheel hub assembly and literally pull a shim out and it will automatically adjust the camber based upon how many shims are in the wheel hub surface. So that way it makes it for very quick changes to the camber based upon the feedback that the driver is giving the engineers and the mechanics as they're able to take make those changes very quickly on the fly in the garage. And it's like if they make a change and the driver comes back and says, no, that made it worse, then it makes it much, much easier to be able to take and just simply slip the shims back in. Unlike with a road car where it usually requires meticulous measurements yeah. You know, based upon, you know, some very expensive equipment, the teams are actually able to make these adjustments very quickly on the fly without having to have any kind of special equipment because all they have to do is simply say, okay, we need to take and bring the camber in by uh, two millimeters. According to the driver's feedback has been given to us. So they will just simply reach in there and pull out the two millimeter shim on each side and send them back out. So the next part of the equation beyond the camber is what's referred to as the toe. And when I say toe, I'm not talking like T-O-W, like when you're in somebody else's slipstream, I'm talking about toe like the toe on your foot. <laughs> so camber is the vertical relationship of the wheels. The toe is the horizontal relationship of the wheel. So there's a negative toe, which means that the front of the tires are pushed more in towards the front of the car. And a positive toe means that the rear of the wheels are pushed in more towards the car. So the reason why toe is important is that will dictate how well the tires are able to grab onto the tarmac going into a corner. With most road going cars, the tires are generally set up at a neutral toe or maybe just a slightly negative toe. It's measured literally in millimeters. Like, so a 0.1 negative toe means that the front of the tires are in one millimeter closer to the car than the back tires. With the toe, it's very much like the camber where they will actually have shims built into the wheel hubs where they're actually able to take and pull these shims in and out uh, based upon the driver's feedback that will take and adjust the toe in and out to suit the driver's style. The reason why toe is so important is, is that because different drivers have, of course, as we've talked about a number of times, different drivers have different driving styles. You have drivers like Michael Schumacher and Fernando Alonso who like a car, which is what they refer to as very much on the nose, which means that it is very sharp when it goes into the corner. And the more toe out that you have, the more that the tire is going to have that quote unquote sharpness to it. Whereas some drivers like it more neutral, which is, means that the tires will, the wheels will be pretty much more neutral in their toe. And then you also have some drivers who like a lot more understeer. And so that they will take and they will adjust it. So the toe is more inward. But even when I say more inward, in most cases, the toe on a Formula One car is almost every single driver, whether they like it very on the nose or whether they like it with more understeer, the toe is almost always positive. Unlike most road cars where the front tires will usually have a, a very small amount of negative toe and the rear tires will usually be zero toe zero degrees on the toe. Whereas on a Formula One car, you could have some drivers who might like as much as 0.2 or 0.3 degrees of toe on their front tires. And generally the rear tires are usually either held at a more neutral toe or just slightly inward in order to 
keep maximum contact when the tires are rotating as they're going through the corner and they're applying the throttle. All right, so that brings us up to our last piece of the suspension puzzle is we've talked about this before again, but is the anti-roll bars and the heave springs. We talked about how the car will generally want to load in the opposite direction of the way that the car is turning. Well, the whole job of an anti-roll bar and the heave springs is to minimize that rolling so that that way the tires are actually able to keep as much of a contact patch with the road surface as possible. More contact means more grip, more grip means driver has much more confidence to push the car through the corner. And braking as well. So and, and braking as well, yes. And stop hard. Yes, exactly. And that's a very good point too, that all of these things also will not just affect the ability of the car to go through the corner, but they do also very much have an effect on the braking. And as much as they have an effect on the braking, they will also have a profound effect on the tire degradation as well. The driver may like the car more neutral, but when they set up the toe and the camber, depending upon how aggressive the driver is attacking the corners, will have a profound effect on the tire degradation so that sometimes they will have to make a compromise that maybe the driver likes the car a certain way, but in order to be able to make it through stints between pit stops, they might have to go with a slightly, you know, more or less toe and camber on the wheels than what the driver may particularly like, but they may have to do that. That's the reason why sometimes you'll see a driver at the beginning of the stint, the car is more to their liking because of the way that they've had to set it up in order to manage the tire degradation. But as you'll see, his lap times will start to fall off as the tires degrade. And sometimes you will see just the opposite effect where the driver may start out and the car's not really to their liking. So they're having a little difficulty getting through it. But as the tires degrade, it'll actually do what they call coming into the tires, which is where the tires will actually come into a grip point with the suspension geometry that the driver starts to gain more and more confidence with the tires but the one bad thing about formula one tires though is they do have very much so have a cliff though so if a driver starts <laughs> off with a the handling isn't necessarily where they like then it comes into a point where they like and they're actually able to put down a few really really great laps and then all of a sudden you'll, it'll like nosedive and then that's at the point where it's time to box but you know it's funny you can see that first option where tires degrade and fall off really quickly. Ferrari, mm -hmm. is Haas, same thing. You oh, know? yes. Haas is, yeah, is, is, yeah, that's been one of the key story points around Haas this year has been they're able to set the car up and the car is great and is oftentimes Holy, is yeah. really, really good in qualifying, sometimes just outright brilliant in qualifying, yeah. especially in the wet. Right. You know, in the hands of Nico Hulkenberg, if he's got oh, a, yeah. a wet weather, qualifying he's brilliant in it but at the same time their race pace because race the tires pace. fall off so much faster than anybody else on the grid you know, they start off really well in the race if they get a really good start they'll make up places during the start but they very quickly fall off and fall back in the pack after the yeah. first you know 8 10 15 laps depending upon what the lap distance is and things like that so yes so all of these parts about the suspension play such a crucial role because, you know, you'll hear time and time again, people will say, well, the tires are the only four points of the car 
that exactly. actually touched the road surface. Nothing else on the car, well, with the exception of the plank, but that's another story for another time. <laughs> you know, but even the plank doesn't maintain contact with the ground all the time. It's right. only the tires. So everything in Formula One, well, with any automobile, is it is maintaining as much grip as you possibly can on those four corners that are actually touching the road surface. It's all about making sure that those are working at their absolute best. Exactly. That's the reason why I often laugh at the tuners who pour tons and tons and tons of money into their engine and exhaust and things like that to make the car go fast in a straight line. But then as soon as they have to take make a turn, forget it. They have to slow to a crawl <laughs> right. because the car just won't get around the corner and everything. Right. That's the reason why when people ask me, you know, well, what should I do first to my car? First two things that you should do to a car before you even think about trying to make more horsepower yeah. or touching the motor or transmission or anything, suspension and brakes. Because yeah. it's like, if you can't get around the corner or if you can't properly right. brake to get into the corner yeah. so that you can carry maximum speed through the corner, you're, otherwise you're just wasting your time. Exactly. Yeah, you're those other upgrades. Yeah, yeah. They won't matter. Unless, unless your only objective is just to be able to take and go as fast as you possibly can in a straight line. Yeah. But even then, brakes are still your number one thing because no matter how fast <laughs> you're going in a straight line, you still got to shut them down. Yeah, you know, exactly. you still have to bring the car to a stop at some point. You're yep. not going to go in a, in a straight line fast forever. Right. Right. There will be that drop off point where you have to stop way before. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So on to news, talk about yes. a little bit about the race. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is let's talk about the pomp and circumstance leading up to the race. Yeah. Well, first of all, last week during the preview, we talked about the hype from F1. And then we also heard a lot of the negative hype from people who live in Las Vegas and people yeah. who were on the periphery who weren't towing the company line. Formula One was saying, this is going to be great. People who lived in Vegas were saying, this is going to be a show. And I think we got a little bit of both. We had the crazy, quote unquote, opening ceremonies, which I can't remember the last time we had a race that had this much hoopla before the cars had even turned yeah. a lap. I mean, we had a gaggle of Elvis impersonators in the pit lane. They had set up a wedding chapel yeah, in yeah, the right. paddock. First couple that got married in this chapel was world champion Jacques Villeneuve, married his longtime girlfriend, and they were the first ones to get married which was even a surprise even to him i found out later on in the fact that she had had this all planned wow, told yeah. his entire family and they had all kept this secret from him up until the very last minute that they were getting married at the chapel during the opening ceremony it's been long enough bud <laughs> yeah yes absolutely it was cool and at the same time it was very I don't know, surreal. The fact that they had put all of this hype and all this spectacle behind the opening of the track. Last year when they opened up Miami, you know, they did some things, but nothing to this yeah, degree. I mean, this was so far over the top of anything that they've done in recent memory on the opening of a new circuit or anything that it was just some people said it was too much. Other people loved it. Where do you stand on it? I thought it was a bit much. Tell I... me what you thought absolutely hated it and i don't mean to be a naysayer here and we'll talk more about this when we get into the race but i wasn't a big fan of it from start to just about to finish the glitz and the glamour and all that stuff that they tried to roll out i think was 
way over the top, not necessary for F1. It wasn't necessary for fans. They had all this preparation and, and making the, the show itself look good. They forgot the most important thing, which is make it an exciting race, make it safe mm-hmm. for the drivers. Make it mm-hmm. where fans can actually go and not get kicked out 10 minutes later. Yeah. That's what they should have concentrated on, not making a show. Yes, agreed. With that, we have to talk about, the, first of all, the FP1 debacle. Yeah. I mean, it's like literally they open the track and we literally got eight minutes of action before they shut the whole thing down. Because- and the reason being is yep. because Carlos Sainz coming down the straightaway on the Las Vegas Strip rolls over a water valve cover they had actually gone around and they had welded all the covers into the openings but the problem was is that the cement around the metal ring that denotes the opening that the cover attaches to actually degraded to the point that the entire cover and the outside piece actually came loose slammed in the bottom of Sign's car destroyed it rips a hole in the tray underneath it destroys his battery so they literally had to go around they had to stop fp1 basically said we're not going to restart it i saw a figure somewhere that said it was like 220 or 240 of these water covers they had to literally go around and completely cover you know mark them where they were at and then completely cover them with asphalt in order to keep this from happening again which this is one of those things that, like I said, the teething problems that we saw with this race that I'm hope that hopefully they learned their lessons from these things. We won't see a repeat of this next year, but for this to happen, and I know it's not unprecedented. They actually even talked about it during the Sky telecast that they actually had had the same problem in Bahrain a couple of years ago. And I believe it was George Russell who had the same, something very similar happened to his car, not to the degree that what happened to Sainz's car, but it did happen to Russell and they had to kind of do the same thing. But my thing is, is if they already knew from Bahrain that something like this could happen, why didn't they already have these things marked and then covered up completely? The other theory is just go ahead. So here's my theory. They knew about it. What they're wanting to do is test the drivers on who was a Jedi and who wasn't. Who has the highest amount of midi chlorians in them? Yeah. I'm afraid is not a Jedi. Mm-mm. No, he is not. So that's my conspiracy <laughs> theory for today. <laughs> there you go. I like it. <laughs> but yeah, so yes. So FP1 was a complete debacle. They closed down everything. Just real quick, which means again, forget about FP2. You're, you're paying thousands of dollars. You go there and FP1 is closed after nine minutes. Yes. Horrible for the fans. Instead of concentrating so much on the stupid ceremonies and everything like that, concentrate on what really matters. And that's the part that they completely forgot. Go ahead. Yes. No, to- no, totally agree with you. And I think that's a, that's a very, very, very astute point. Their focus was not where it really needed to be in concern with the safety of the track. And we have some other issues that we'll talk about here in yep. just a minute as well that came out of the safety of the track. Five hours later, they finally reopen the track now first of all one of the biggest issues that i have to the man every single one of the drivers hated and that was the late starts for everything the fact that fp1 didn't start until i believe it was like nine o'clock local time yeah so for us that was what 11 o'clock p.m central time so i mean it was great for the people back in europe because they were you know being seven eight hours behind 
it was morning time for them for the next yeah. day. That was ridiculous. And the race start time was at 11 p.m. local time, which is, that's that's just, that's insane. Not only for that, but I mean, the drivers themselves, you could just tell in the time zones. And then for these late starts, it made no sense. Yes, it was supposed to be a night race mm -hmm. because they wanted to be, be able to see all yeah. the flashy signs from the strip. And they wanted to be able to take light the sphere up with all kinds of different things during the race. It gets dark around six, you know, seven. six thirty, seven <laughs> o'clock. You could have had like an eight o'clock start, Easy. you know, for the race. Same thing with FP one. They could have done FP one at started at like seven o'clock, seven to eight, two hour break. Having FP two at ten o'clock still wouldn't have been bad. But then with the debacle from FP one. And then it takes and it postpones FP2 for like five hours. It was 2.30 in the morning before the first wheel was turned in anger in FP2, yeah. which is just ridiculous. And then plus not only that, but you did it completely in front of no fans because they kicked exactly. everybody out, yep. which has resulted in lawsuits being filed. Yeah. You've got angry fans because everything was so over the top, not just in the spectacle, but in the pricing of everything you have a lot of fans who literally the only way that they could afford to even go to this at all was to buy a one-day ticket for the practices they couldn't even afford to go to the qualifying or to the race itself so you've got fans who literally paid hundreds of dollars just to go to the free practices on friday and they got to see Captain. nine minutes worth of action and f1 has not issued an apology right and they are and as of right now they are not going to issue a refund to those single-day ticket holders. There's already a law firm in Las Vegas that has already filed and a, a claim against F1 for these fans, and I think uh, bravo to them. And it's yeah. this is one of those things that F1 needs to be called the task for, right? Because this is just completely unacceptable. And most of the time, I would say, come on, you know, let's let's be real here. Let's not do lawsuits. I'm not a big fan of lawsuits or lawyers in general, but this one actually makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. If this teaches F1 a lesson, hey, don't do this in the future, that's well worth it. The lawsuit in this particular case is warranted. If you bought a ticket for the whole weekend and you lost out on the first day, okay, yeah, I can see F1 said, no, you're yeah. not going to get a refund because you still got to watch fp3 you got yeah. to watch qualifying you got to watch the race you get to watch the everything that goes on afterwards but it's the people Absolutely. who bought a, a single day ticket and that was literally the only time and for formula one to basically say f you we're not giving you your money back they haven't come out and said that we're not giving your money back but at the same time they haven't issued any kind of an apology really basically said nothing and because of that it's i think it's definitely a black eye and i definitely think that it warrants you know in this particular case a lawsuit yeah. Uh, in addition to F1 not issuing an apology, not doing anything for the fans, is also their complete lack of common sense as well. And we'll get into it a little bit more, but the whole penalty to Carlos Sainz because of the promoter's negligence and F1's negligence in making sure the track was as safe as possible, for them to take and enforce the penalty because Sainz, the battery ruptured, so yep. the battery had to be replaced on the energy recovery system for formula one to say, okay, you took on a battery, therefore, you know, and it's outside of your allotment. Therefore you're going to take a 10 place grid penalty for them to say to, for them to enforce that and not have some common sense. Martin Brundle had a very good point about it. The sporting regulations for formula one 
is 107 pages long, but not once in those regulations. It lays out very clearly and succinctly the rules governing the power units, the cars themselves, driver safety, penalties, everything else. But not once in there does it mention anything about being able to not enforce a particular penalty just out of common sense. And I understand it's something that needs to be written into the sporting regulations to say sure. the organizers have the have the authority to negate a penalty. They can enforce all kinds of penalties, but they can't negate a penalty because it's not written into the regulations. But I think just a simple statement that says in the event that a non racing incident or something that is outside of the drivers and f1's control causes an issue with the car then the penalty can be negated at the option of the stewards or something to that effect i get that man and, and I, I heard his commentary on that but just like what you were saying in the beginning common sense yeah that, that's all it takes i understand it's not in the regulations and blah 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 okay i, I get it but the guy qualifies yeah. at second place. Ferrari has a lockout and you're going to demote him 10 places because of something that's not his fault. Again, yeah, I, I understand rules are rules and everything like that. It Come just, on, man. Yeah, exactly. It has no dealing with absolute just, okay, let's think about this as people. Yes. As fans of F1, let's sit down and chat about this. Okay, well, he's not doing this for performance reasons. He's not doing this because his battery's dead. He's doing this because the track was not prepared. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but Ferrari had to pay a ton of money to get this thing repaired. They're not going to get that back. They already know they're not going to get Las Vegas isn't nope. going to recoup that cost. Nobody is but Ferrari. So now, you you know, in, insult to injury. You know, not only do you have this issue with 10 grid penalty, but you also have to pay all this enormous amount of money to get it repaired. It was another point of failure here for F1. Yes, absolutely. I agree. The way that they would have to write it into the sporting regulations, I mean, because it's one thing if the driver ruins the bottom of the car and ruptures the battery because he's running over the curves or something, you know, yeah. and it's like Completely he's, get he's that. driving yeah. That's normal. Yep. Dry, that's a normal racing incident, if you will. And yes, I can understand them having to do that because the driver drove over the curbs. It's your fault. Or yeah. Or he took and he went to go make a pass, and they had a racing incident, and it damaged the car. That's hey. on the team. That's on the driver. The guy was literally going in a straight line in the middle of the track in what's supposed to be, quote unquote, the safest point at any time, and he sucks up a, a metal valve cover. That goes into his into the bottom of his car. Anyway, and, and to dive into that just a bit, just for one second, that drain cover was something that there's no way he could have known that it was bad. So, for instance, no. like Singapore, right? Nobody mm -hmm. hit the lizards because they saw them and they they went around and everything like that. So no damage to the cars. So and yes. there's lots of instances where drivers have had to go around debris on track. Mm -hmm. Okay, hey, if you hit that. Sucks, man. I'm sorry, but you sucks know, to be you. You're F1 driver. You need to be better. Yeah. This is something completely unexpected, completely unseen. There's no way that Carlos, unless he was truly a Jedi, there's no way that he could have ever found that out. None. Yep. And no. that's the issue that I have with it. Absolutely. I agree 100%. So let's move on to Emo Max. <laughs> <laughs> Max Verstappen, what basically. To me, he reminded me of one of those emo kids who goes to a party and 
<laughs> he sits off to the side and he complains, oh, this party sucks. These people are stupid. But secretly, deep down inside, he's having a great time and he's glad that he's there. How he hated Vegas. He hated, the, you know, the track. He hated everything about it and everything. But at the end of the day, he wins the race, qualifies third, gets promoted to second because of signs penalty. Has a really great race by all accounts. At the end of the race, he's singing Viva Las Vegas yeah. in the car. <laughs> over the radio he, he gets in the limo at the end where they take him over to where they take they do the post-race interviews so he's sitting in the back of the rolls royce and he says well it's just you know we should just skip this and just go to the nightclubs and we'll say we'll see you tomorrow and everything yeah he's ha having an absolutely fantastic time all of a sudden and now all of a sudden he likes vegas i agreed with him in the beginning right where he was saying that it's not an interesting track because it's not it's, uh, you know, it has a few turns and, and everything like that. It's it's built around Las Vegas just so you can see all the sights. That's really, mm -hmm. to be honest, that's the only reason why it's there. It's a boring race. It, it, we'll talk about this here in just a few, but it, I didn't really particularly like it. So I under, understood then, but, you know, who knows? Maybe he was getting caught up in, in the euphoria of a win but i definitely did, agreed with him pre-viva las vegas singing <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely but at the same time even though he didn't want to be there he complained about it so staying on the on the subject of red bull well first of all we have to talk about you know even though max didn't want to be there and as much as he complained about it, that the track was uninteresting the thing was that like a lot a lot of the drivers took kind of took some time off because they'd gone through that gauntlet, you know, that three weekend gauntlet between Austin and Mexico and Brazil. And what does Max do? He takes and he flies back to Milton Keys and spends untold hours on the simulator. And when people asked him, well, you know, are you going to take some time off and relax before Vegas? And he said, nope, I'm going back to the factory and I'm going to spend some time in the simulator. And they're like, well, why? You're already world champion. And it was like, because if I don't, if I go to Vegas and if I don't win because I didn't put in the preparation, I'll kick myself. Yeah. So that I just goes that to show you, but that just goes to show you the level. And, and I know we've talked about it a number of times here on the podcast about those kind of little things that separate yeah. good drivers from world champions people have talked oh well because max has got the best car and everything it's like no because max has got the best car he has taken everything that he has been given to him and he is literally wringing the neck of yeah. that car there are other drivers on the grid that i guarantee you that if they had that same car they're not going to be a world champion just Check simply out. because they are not going to grab everything they are not going to wring the neck of that car to the point where it's ready to break. That's just wired into their DNA. Exactly. I mean, look at Checo. You know, he's a world-class yeah. driver, no doubt about it. Whether you like him or not, he is a phenomenal driver. Mm -hmm. And he's not, he's not world champion. No. He's close. He's the closest, I should say. I shouldn't say he's close. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> he's the closest, yes. But, you know, yes. you have another and phenomenal driver in a great car that's not going to translate all the time. No, not always. We've seen the same thing that Lewis has done the last yeah. two seasons is the Mercedes has not been anywhere even close to the same caliber of cars that Lewis had when he was winning all of his world championships. But at the same time, he has taken everything that Mercedes has given him and he has wrung the crap out of the cars and he has gotten results out of it yeah. that there's probably only maybe two, three drivers on the grid. Yeah 
that could get the same kind of results out of that car. These drivers already are beyond the normal human, the way that they're wired, but it's that little bit extra is what separates a world champion from these other drivers. Yeah, exactly right. So on to Checo. Sticking on the subject of Red Bull, we got to talk about Checo. He again misses FP3 for, for his ninth time this season. He misses out on Q3. Finishes the top of the Q2 chart in 11th place. You have to give credit to Checo in the fact that even though his qualifying was not great, he had an absolutely brilliant drive. He made an amazing start. He then takes and elevates himself to, at one point, he's actually leading the race, led a number of laps. If it weren't for the absolutely brilliant pass that Charles Leclerc pulled on the last lap against Perez. Perez would have been second on podium. And the fact that he was only, what, two and a half seconds behind Verstappen at the end goes to show just what a phenomenal drive that he had this weekend. Although both of those drivers, Perez and Leclerc, both of them have defied my predictions. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, very much so. Yeah, last week I said Perez would be fourth or fifth or six, maybe one of those, Mm -hmm. but he wouldn't be on podium. Obviously I was wrong. And then uh, Leclerc, I said, would be bitten by yet another string of bad luck. He was not. (laughs) Yes, He actually got some good luck on this race. Let's stay on that subject that yes, Charles Luck finally turned for the most part. We still have one stat that we'll talk about here in just a second that is still very glaring. He had a great weekend, qualified on pole position, although this made what I heard the stat that I think it was like his 12th or 13th pole position that he wasn't able in a row that he hasn't been able to convert into a win, which is still a bit of a glaring stat, but at the same time, He had a great race. Ferrari, for the most part, got the strategy right this time. They didn't have any cock-ups in the pits. His last lap pass of Perez to snatch second place from him was just phenomenal. And the thing was is that Verstappen's car was starting to drop off, that if they'd had another four or five laps, we maybe possibly could he maybe have converted that pole position into a win? Right. We won't know. So on to signs. Yeah, his drive was phenomenal. With the penalty, he gets dropped to 12th place on the grid. For him to take and come all the way from 12th all the way up to 5th, it showed an absolutely inspired drive when he had, after the horrendous incident during FP1, and then being completely dejected by it because of the penalty handed to him by the FIA, for him to be able to take and storm back and finish in fifth, especially after the first lap, he takes advantage of the early virtual safety car, pits early, and gets dropped way back in the pack. And for him to storm from the back of the pack with absolutely brilliant pit stops and an absolutely inspired drive for him to finish fifth, just as a testament to just the resiliency that signs had this weekend, despite everything that was dealt to him. He is an amazing driver. I would love to see him with the proper strategy. (laughs) Given that him and Leclerc, I think would be challenging Red Bull a lot more if it weren't for some odd mistakes here or there, I would say in strategy. Other than that, man, I think that it would be fantastic. Anyway, I I love watching him race. And the car has been really, really good this year. There's been a few times where they've been off the pace, but for the most part, the car has been on the pace every weekend. So on to Williams? Yeah. So let's talk about Williams real quick. So 
this is another one kind of like the Haas, where we kind of expected Williams to do well on this track because as we've talked about before this year, this year's car is really, really good on the higher speed circuits in a straight line. This car is the Williams is really, really fast. And it showed Albon and Sargent both had a absolutely brilliant qualifying. They bring the cars home in sixth and seventh. So of course, you know, they get promoted one space each, you know, with signs penalty. So they end up starting the race in fifth and sixth place. Kudos to not just to Albon for doing so well, but Sargent really yeah. surprised in having just right. an absolutely brilliant qualifying because of the Williams does not have the race pace of its contemporaries. They fell off really badly during the race and they ended up coming high. I believe Albon came home in what 12th place. So they both started really, really well. And then as the race went on, they dropped off and dropped off and dropped off to the point where they didn't even finish in the points this week. And so you really have to kind of feel for the Williams team. The start of the race held so much promise and for them to finish where they did was really disappointing. Yeah, it really was. I was really hoping to see a better showing of both of them, but you know, especially Albon, especially since they had such a really long straightaway. I thought Williams were just going to crush it because of that straightaway. But mm -hmm. just like you were saying earlier, it's that race pace. It just is yes. for them. Yeah, it was. It just that it killed them. Yeah. So, but on the opposite side of the coin, we have to take and talk about McLaren, who had an absolutely dismal qualifying. And in the case of Oscar, had an absolutely brilliant race. Oscar started in 19th and storms all the way up to fifth place and has the fastest lap of the race and the fastest pit stop at 1.99 seconds. So the only sub two second yeah. pit stop yeah. of the whole weekend all went to McLaren. I know we have talked about it to the point where, you know, people are probably sick of listening to us talk about it, but <laughs> just how dramatic the turnaround has been for McLaren this season since the summer break that not only has the car gotten so much better but the team itself has gotten so much better and the fact that they're consistently taking the fastest lap of the race so far they have the two fastest pit stops on the season so far and I saw a stat they have more fastest pit stops this year than like all the other teams combined the top 20 fastest pit stops since the summer break so we do have to add that caveat that since the summer break, if you take the 20 fastest pit stops, they have like 10 or 11 of those fastest That's pit crazy. stops. Nice. That just goes to show you what a turnaround that McLaren has made since the summer break. It's one of those situations of they produce such a great car that it has given the driver such confidence that's in turn is giving the mechanics confidence, yeah. which is giving the drivers the confidence, which is giving the, you know, and it's just that cycle where it's just like right. the more confidence the drivers have, the more confidence and the better performance the mechanics have because they want to do everything they can to make the drivers better. Yeah. And so the drivers are better. And it's just that cycle. It's it's yep. the same thing that we saw, you know, in the early 2000s with Schumacher. It's like the more success Schumacher had, the more success the team had because the team rallied and they all helped each other get better. The drivers yeah. helped the mechanics get better. The mechanics helped the drivers get better. Right. So, yeah, exactly. So to the man. So, yes. So, McLaren, with the respect to Oscar. Now, poor Lando. Oh, oh. man. I saw a real-time... 
footage of they just released it of his crash you know from mm-hmm. the car oh my gosh it's scary i'm shocked that he's didn't have more wrong with him you know or anything wrong with him really yeah it's the fact that he yeah just walked away yes yeah it was incredible so and this is another case where the track because they later just figured out that it was he hit there was a really bad bump because one of the few changes in elevation is a very short rise as you're coming up so you come up a very small hill as you're coming down the straightaway along the las vegas strip which is like one point something 1.1 miles long and there's a slight rise as you're coming up into the braking zone and there was a bump right there on that rise and we saw it continuously throughout practice qualifying through the race the drivers as they were coming up that rise you would see the sparks flying off the back end of the car because they were hitting that bump on the rise and the plank was bottoming out and causing these sparks to fly and everything well this particular time lando hit that bump just right and the whole rear end of the car stepped out on him and at that point he was just a passenger there was nothing i don't care who you are and I don't care if you're Fernando Alonso, if you're Max Verstappen, I don't care who you are, you're a passenger at that point. And there is yep. absolutely nothing you can do. And he went hard into yeah. the barrier. Yep. And like you said, it was really, really scary to watch. Took him to the infield trauma center and checked him out and everything. But the fact that he walked away with no injuries or anything, it's a testament to the cars. It's a testament to the safety barriers. It's a testament to the course workers, everything else worked exactly the way it was supposed to right another team alpine kind of had the exact same thing gasly right. qualified really well dropped way back Ocon had an awful qualifying session and charged to the front had an absolutely oh, brilliant yeah. race so really did kudos to alpine making silk where they could <laughs> haas aston martin alfatari all had mediocre to really bad weekends in the case of Alfa Romeo, we know that they've given up on the car. I would say at this point, Haas has also given up on it. And probably to some degree, Alfa Tari has given up on the car for this One year. Race. You, you know, know, yeah, yeah. You know, they're more focused on next year's car. So they're basically Absolutely. just there to Alfa Tari. They're just there to maintain their place in the Constructors' Championship. Haas and, and Alfa are there to fight it out for the, the scraps. So we won't go into that. So let's take a quick laugh, though, as you were talking about predictions earlier. We made some pretty bold predictions during the Las Vegas preview last week. And like you said, both of your predictions were wrong. I had one that was right. I had four and a half that were wrong. Four and a half out of five. Because I said that, A, there would be a a carnage in the first lap. So we did have that. We did have the carnage. We had Max, which we didn't touch upon Max's penalty. He pushes Leclerc at the start, gets his five-second penalty, which even the drivers are now saying is a joke. I have said this for a long time, that the whole time penalty thing is a complete freaking joke. They really need to reinstitute the drive-through penalty, but that's discussion for another day. We'll discuss that maybe during the off-season or something. Yeah. But we had the carnage. You know, we had cars looping around. We had poor Rez. Again, another thing that added to the brilliance of his drive is he got the whole front wing completely torn up. Yeah. Makes that early pit stop under the virtual safety car and storms back to, at one point, lead the race. It was a lot of carnage, but Alonso out-qualified Stroll, so I was wrong there. Yeah. I said someone other than Max would win. I was wrong there. <laughs> That's the one that I got right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
all in all, I had a pretty dismal record this week, and so I'm glad we didn't have any money on this. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, so let's look forward to Abu Dhabi real quick. Last race of the season. So we're going to be going into the last race of the season. So let's take a quick moment. What do we think is going to happen this weekend? So I'll go ahead and I'll let you start. I love that track. So I'm just looking forward to the race itself. But as far as my predictions, I'll I'll stick with the tried and true. Max Verstappen will win. Let's see here. I'm going to say that Lando will... He'll be on podium. I'm going to say that so will Hamilton. So I think Hamilton's going to be up there. Russell's mm -hmm. going to be in fifth or sixth. I think Signs is going to be fourth-ish, somewhere right around in there. And then, mm -hmm. you know, I think Alonzo's going to do very well. He'll probably come in sixth, seventh, something like that. Those are my predictions. So okay. fingers crossed. <laughs> yes. All right, then. Well, yes, I'm like you that when Formula One first announced that they were going to Abu Dhabi, I did not really think that it was going to be very good. But I do have to admit that I was wrong and that the I'm like you, though, I have come to absolutely love Abu Dhabi. And I think a lot of that had to the first few times that I actually drove Abu Dhabi in the simulator that I came to realize that this is really, it is, I understand why the drivers themselves like the track because it's such a great, it's like Austin in the fact that it's got a great mix of medium and high speed corners, some great straightaways. It's got probably one of the most interesting pit lanes on the formula one calendar where the pit exit actually exits underneath the racetrack itself and then comes back out on the opposite side of where the pit yeah. lane is at yeah. blast underneath the awning for the hotel is just a fantastic track and it's going to be such a marked difference between this weekend where all the teams were dealing with the cold weather and trying to keep temperature in the tires and now we're going from desert to desert but we're going from the cold of nighttime in the Nevada desert to the heat of Abu Dhabi. So it's going to be you know, a, an extreme challenge for teams and everything to go from one extreme yeah. to the next. It's going to make for some very interesting racing. So yeah. I'm going to stick with my one prediction in the fact that I would like to say that I don't think Max is going to win this weekend. Let's be honest with you. <laughs> He's probably, you know, this is a tra another track that he dominates at. But yeah. this is also a track that Lewis... Yeah. really 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 loves and mercedes is able to give him on the last go round is able to give him the car that he needs i think it's going to be a good battle at least ways at the very least in qualifying it's going to be a great battle between lewis and max i think that checo will go very very well this weekend i'm predicting a really strong showing from checo especially now that he's got that p2 in the driver's championship locked up I think that he's going to have a little bit of the pressure off of him, that he's going to go really well. And I really do believe that Lando is going to want to go out on a very high note. So yeah. I think that McLaren will do very, very well this weekend. I think this is a track that's going to really suit the McLaren this weekend. I predict that Haas and Williams will actually have very miserable weekends. So I know these are all probably pretty, pretty easy no predictions. bold predictions here week. for Scott. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we'll, 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 uh, we'll call it that. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. All right. Sounds so, good. All right. And with that, we're crossing the finish line on another episode of F1 Break Check. Corey and I will be back next week with another episode to discuss the season finale at Abu Dhabi, which promises more adrenaline than a team principal watching this year's budget get stuffed into a barrier. Thank you for listening to F1 Break Check. If you have enjoyed what you heard, 
Don't miss a single episode by hitting that subscribe button in your favorite podcatcher. Also, help us grow by sharing us with your friends and fellow F1 fans. We value your feedback and passion, so please take a moment to review our podcast. Your reviews help us grow and improve, and it means the world to us. Share your thoughts, rate us, and let us know how we can make the show experience even better. F1 Break Check is a production of Break Check Media. For your hosts Scott Dick and Corey Broom, until next time stay inside track limits, and try not to pitch it in the kitty litter.